Well, please turn your Bibles this morning to the Psalm 139. And Psalm 139. I'm going to begin in the opening verse and then jump down a little further. And Psalm 139 begins, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me, and Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. And the psalmist then continues to really give evidences for that, the evidence of God's omniscience. He knows all things and God's omnipresence. We can't flee from God. And so in light of the character of God, he knows all things. But it becomes even more personal down in the verse number 13 where the psalmist says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which continues were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. Amen. May God bless his word to your hearts today. Again, we've been looking in the last oh, two years or so, looking at the subject of ethics, those principles that govern and direct our conduct. What are the things that really are in the word of God that help us understand how to live in this fallen world? And again, in recent times, we've been looking at the subject of God's ethics for family. And the next part of that study, providentially, pertains to the ethics of children. What are the ethical principles regarding children in the home? God clearly has placed his blessing upon children. Despite the complaints of parents, children are a good thing. They come graciously from the Lord. And the Lord is very much in favor of parents having children. That's a good thing of God. And of course, in light of ethics, we live in a day when the attack upon that is relentless. There are so many doubts being placed upon the principle of God blessing family with children. I can understand there are various uh, providential circumstances. There are those who are hindered from having children. But the general tenor of the Word of God is that God is pleased to bless families with children. So, of course, today is an important day. In God's providence, again, this is not my engineering. In God's providence, today is 50 years from the decision of Roe v. Wade. Now, you're looking at that headline, and your attention is falling to the death of Lyndon Johnson. Because he died the same day that Roe v. Wade was decided 50 years ago, January 22nd, 1973. And they did it overshadowed the news of the decision of the Supreme Court regarding legalizing, as they termed it, legalizing abortion during those first three months, the first trimester, as they termed it, of, of pregnancy. And so I didn't engineer uh, this providence. This is in, God, in God's providence. Uh, and yet I think it's important that we take some time again to consider this matter. Roe v. Wade, 50 years on. I've invited Mr. Bryce's class up here also. Uh, very mindful that that generation, this generation of teenagers, they must understand these principles. And so while some of you are so well-versed in this, and this will not be uh, anyway new, uh, we as older folks uh, must we must give way to the younger people in tolerating repetition. God, accept the fact that repetition is important for them. And so as you may go, yes, 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 I hope you do. 
Understand that our young people also need to be taught these things line upon line, precept upon precept. There are some startling things uh, that are worth remembering when it comes to this particular decision. Uh, Back in 1973, uh, this is some of the language used in the decision. They said this, this right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or as the District Court determined in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether to terminate her pregnancy. Those of you who are well-versed in the, in the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment, of course, uh, seeking to realize there were rights that people had beyond uh, the Constitution. And part of the Bill of Rights was to ensure that the other rights were not excluded by their absence in the Constitution. And then the 14th Amendment also dealing with the matter of the person's liberty, liberty to engage in activity without the state's uh, restriction on those activities. Now, to take those concepts and to apply that to abortion is unconscionable. The founding fathers clearly had no thought of abortion when they framed those particular statements. And yet, as we know, the Supreme Court 50 years ago felt that those things were broad enough to include a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy. And so there's this issue of privacy, as we'll term privacy, as a part of the decision of Roe v. Wade. The other matter that was important was the question, well, is the fetus, as they would term it, this young, developing child in the womb, was it really a person? And they said this, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary in this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. And yet they did. A tremendous contradiction here in the language and the decision. Because they did put an arbitrary definition or an arbitrary line in the language they use regarding pregnancies within the first trimester. First 10 to 12 weeks, depending how you use that term, dividing pregnancy into three uh, distinct components. So they were reluctant to look at the latter trimesters, but were not reluctant to deal with the legality of abortion as they saw it in the first trimester. And so these are ongoing important issues. Of course, we know last year we praise the Lord for the Dobbs decision, on June 24, 2022, again, that, the decision declared in that time, where it was, it was understood the U.S. Constitution does not confer the right to abortion. And the states had the right to legislate as they determined appropriate. It's a good decision, and we praise the Lord for it. But what happens next? Well, of course, you'll know in the last uh, six months or so, we have seen various states battling to pass legislation in both directions. Some seeking to entrench uh, the constitutional right for abortion in their states, others seeking to pass legislation that would prevent that being in the state's legislator. And so those battles have happened, and let's be honest, the decisions of various states in November were, to put it mildly, disappointing. Heartbreaking is probably a better way to describe that. They were absolutely devastating to see how many in this nation would gladly put their name to a law that would provide abortion rights as they sought in their state. That is tragic. And that's the state in which we live. 
not the state necessarily, but the, the, the position that we find ourselves in the world today. And a new generation needs to think on these things. It needs to consider them carefully, understand what the teaching of the Word of God is. Because in Christian circles, there is confusion still. Confusing ideas regarding the matters of privacy and personhood. And those are the two areas I want to cover this morning, 50 years from Roe. Um, we'll come back to this next week with some other issues regarding the abortion uh, situation. But today I want to restrict ourselves to these two particular areas, the personhood of the unborn and then the privacy of the mother. Uh, having looked at the language of Roe v. Wade, having looked at that language and seen that those two issues really do come to the fore in their deliberations and then in them passing these things as being constitutional. Personhood. You see, sadly, there are those within the medical profession who defend a woman's right to abortion. Those even within that medical profession who should know better, they will defend the rights. And yet, using their own definitions, they must admit that abortion is the taking of a human life. Leaving aside the Bible for now, simple definitions of life lead to the conclusion that abortion is the taking of a human life. What constitutes life? What makes a human being human? Well, the scientific world, of course, defines a living organism as an organism that's growing, multiplying, and using energy. That's kind of a standard definition of life in the scientific world. Growing, multiplying, using energy. And the embryo, the developing unborn child, is alive by any scientific definition. So living, what about human? Well, we, I suppose, scientifically can define humanity by virtue of our DNA, that cellular matter whereby we understand what we are. The building blocks of your humanity. DNA renders us human and not dog or cat. You can discern from your DNA that you are indeed human and not some other organism. One man has said this, or a couple of men have said this in a book called Embryonic Human Persons. He said this, the human embryo has within it all the internal information needed, including chiefly its genetic and epigenetic constitution and the active disposition to develop itself to the mature stage of a human organism. In other words, the human embryo has everything it needs to develop into a human organism. Now, there is no point, and please understand this, young people. There is no point between conception and birth where a human being becomes more human or more living. They don't suddenly take on the properties of humanity at 10 or 12 weeks of gestation. They don't suddenly become living at 10 or 12 weeks of gestation. They are living and they are human from the moment of conception. And that is when life begins. And there is no need for debate or for the judiciary to ponder that particular issue. It doesn't matter whether there are those in the philosophical or theological or scientific world who debate that issue. They debate that issue because of some other moral agenda. They have to turn off their brains to debate that issue properly. And there are other agendas at place whereby they'll discuss and deny that reality. The embryo developing from conception is a living organism. And there's no point 
where life or humanity is somewhat, can somehow conferred to the embryo. This means, again, these peoples continue, this means that the embryo has the same nature. In other words, it is the same kind of entity from fertilization onward. There is only a difference in degree of maturation, not in kind. Between the stages, and again, let's just use the terms they use, embryo, fetus, infant, or newborn child, and so on. Differences in degrees of maturation, not in kind. It's a very important distinction. So we've got to understand that abortion is not the death of cells. Again, one of the ways in which abortion is encouraged is young women, as they often are, in times of crisis. And they do find themselves in times of tremendous crisis. And they are wrestling with the issue. And they go to some clinic to get some counsel. And they're told, listen dear, don't worry yourself. It's only the death of a clump of cells. And the emotive language is used to try to minimize the action. It's not the death of a child, they would say, but only the death of potential life. Not human life as you know it, but only potential life. But by their own definitions, the scientific world must assert that abortion is indeed the death of a human life. But there is a question that develops. Is that human life, does it possess personhood? Is it that sense? Because the surgeon, let's be honest, in a different context, the surgeon may remove living tissue from someone in a surgical procedure. Perhaps there is some abnormality of a part of your liver, and the surgeon's in, and they remove living tissue, and that tissue dies. I said, well, really, is there a difference, really? You're just removing living tissue, and there, what's the problem with that? No difference when it comes to the unborn child. We're just removing living tissue for the benefit of the person from whom we're removing that tissue. And so you cannot just simply say it is a living organism. You must also assert clearly that there is personhood attached to that living organism. And here... I will understand the scientific world has no concept of this properly understood. This is a declaration of of faith. It's not inconsistent with science, but it is certainly a declaration of faith. And the unborn child in the Bible is always deemed a human being. Now theologically, please understand this again, theologically we know that God has two books of Revelation. Two books whereby he reveals truth. The book of the Word of God, the Scriptures, and the book of nature. And God cannot contradict himself. So what we see in the book of nature, in terms of DNA and organisms, what we see in that book must never contradict the book of God. But it's also true the other way around. The book of God never contradicts the book of nature. They speak from the same mouth. There's not two ways of describing these things from our God. And so we have read today the Psalm 139, where the psalmist refers to his person. Verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. 
And again, young people, if you find yourself and you're engaging in a discussion with this in your, in your neighborhood, in your school, or online somewhere, this again is the place to turn, at least to begin with. Clearly the psalmist understood his personhood. They have searched me and known me. And without giving any qualification, he discusses his personhood in verse number 13. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. He understands that God knew him in his unborn state. Not his potential life, but his real personhood. And so you have there down in the verse number 15. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And that's, that's Hebrew euphemism. Language describing the unborn child. Made and formed of God. God's fingers fearfully and wonderfully making the psalmist in his mother's womb. And then verse 16 is significant. Thine eyes did see my substance. And here's the key phrase. Yet being unperfect. You saw the psalmist. They didn't have ultrasound scans. They didn't have all the imaging we have nowadays. True. But the book of God is consistent with the book of nature. And though the psalmist did not understand all that is being said here, the God of heaven inspiring him does. And he uses a term in this idea, yet being unperfect, to describe himself in the mother's womb in a way that is unformed and undeveloped. Now, I would imagine that there was some understanding of this. These people, sometimes modern men, they think the Bible writers must must have been foolish. They didn't have the intellectual understanding we have. These are wise and godly and intelligent people. And they could understand that something is happening in the mother. There's a development of, of a person in their womb. There is obvious growth. And you see the development. And so this term is that in the early stages, there was understanding of the unformed substance, which then develops and arms and legs grow and all the various organisms are formed internally. We see that, we understand that now scientifically. We see that in the, in the modern uh, technology of imaging. But the psalmist knew that. And yet he says in verse 16 again, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. He attaches himself and his identity to the description of his unperfect, unformed, undeveloped state. The two books of God's revelation do not contradict themselves. And so let's go then to the New Testament. And let's read the language of a doctor of that time. Of course, I'm referring to Dr. Luke. And Luke is the most detailed when it comes to the birth of John the Baptist and also the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I was teaching the students this week that when it comes to the inspired scriptures, the writers, they don't, they don't write the Word of God by dictation method. It's not that God speaks and they unthinkingly write down the words but rather, they, they, they have their own background and their own personality, and God uses that as they're inspired to write sacred scripture. And so you see in Luke's writings, you see, you see his background as the beloved physician. You see that background in his writings. And so when he comes to re- describe the unborn, he, he takes the language, verse number 15 of chapter 1, 
for this is John the Baptist, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Clearly personhood involved there in the personality of John the Baptist. But keeping that in mind, I want to start at the, uh, towards the end of Luke and work backwards. Turn to Luke chapter 18, please. And what I want you to see is that Luke used the same Greek word for children at various stages, and he used the same word for these various stages. And there are other words that were available. So this is deliberate, it's conscious. Luke chapter 18, verse 15, And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. And we can't be certain of the age of the infants, but they were, if you like, they're brought to the Lord. They blessed the Lord. They're brought with their, their, their families. And let's say these are children more than likely under the age of eight or ten. Infants brought to Christ. That word that is used there is then used over in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the same word being used here. Luke chapter 2, verse number 12. And ye, this shall be a sign unto you. And of course, this is the angel speaking to the shepherds. Ye shall find, here's the same word, the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Here's a babe wrapped again in the, in the bands of, of early life. The same verse number 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Same word. Luke 2 and Luke chapter 18. And then go back now to Luke chapter 1. Having noted again the language regarding John the Baptist, verse number 41, it says this, And it came to pass, when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt or leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth filled with the Holy Ghost. This is a distinction. This is far beyond what we might term quickening. It's a later stage. And something unique happened in Elizabeth's womb, whereby she would testify to that, and Luke would record that. But the same word is used. The babe leaped in her womb, the unborn babe. The same word for the newborn babe in Luke chapter 2, and the same word for the infant in Luke chapter 18. Same word being used. Of course, the same also, verse number 44. And lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. So look here is consistently asserting the personhood of the unborn in John the Baptist, and then the consistency of the language all through different stages of development, unborn, newborn, infant, using the same language. But beyond that, we must realize that Luke gives us the detail regarding the conception of Christ Jesus. Verse number 35. Again, this is the only gospel that gives us this detail regarding the conception of Christ Jesus. And the angel answered and said unto her, again, no Mary's question. She's been told she'll have a son. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How can I conceive? And the angel says, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. You see, what you see here is the miracle. We often term it the miracle of the virgin birth is really the miracle of the conception. The eternal 
person, the Son of God, takes to himself a human nature as the Holy Ghost comes and performs the miracle of conception in the womb of Mary. He does not develop personhood at some later stage. God and man united in this one person forever, and that union occurs, that person, that union personality is coming from Mary, but that begins at the conception in her womb. The miracle of his birth is predicated in the fact that Jesus, the unborn Jesus, is a true human being. And so you see in the psalmist, you see in Luke this consistency that the unborn is perceived as being a person in the Scriptures. And if that is the case, you would then expect language in the Word of God that the murdering of the unborn is the murdering of a person. And you see that. So if the Bible is consistent regarding this idea, we would then expect to see language in the Bible that the unborn is murdered in the womb. In Jeremiah chapter 20, you turn back there, it's a challenging text. Jeremiah 20 verse 17, it refers to Jeremiah's hypothetical thoughts that it would be better for him if he never born. Cursed be the day where I was born. And he describes the actions of God. Verse 17, because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Now, leaving aside the difficulties of setting that in the context of Jeremiah's experience, he used the language to slew, to slay, which is only used for the death of a person. Ending again the personality of Jeremiah in the mother's womb prior to birth. The personality of the unborn. But please turn back to one other reference. It's Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Again, we find ourselves, this is not a very debated text, some translation difficulties. I think perhaps some of the debate arises because of the conclusion that it presents. You've got Exodus chapter 21 and the verse number 22. If men strive, so you've got a picture, there are two men fighting with each other. And what might happen is the woman gets in the middle of the fight. And she's expecting, she's with child. And she gets in the middle of this dispute so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow. He shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judge is determined. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. What's being said here? Well, the likely understanding of this is that if the man's action leads to a premature delivery, if the child survives the premature delivery, then there will be a fine issued according to the judges and the woman's husband, verse number 22. But if mischief follow, if harm follows, and the harm there is likely the death of the unborn child, then life is to be given for life. The language of murder then takes place here, or at least manslaughter. The idea this is a life that is being taken, not a potential life, but a real life that is being taken from the mother's womb. This confirms the idea that killing of the unborn is the taking of a human life worthy of punishment and the judgment of God. And so I think we can see very consistently that the Bible argues for the personhood of the unborn. 
And so there can be no place for anywhere whereby a Christian can set aside their Bible's understanding and allow a woman to make up her own choice and her own mind. I'm amazed that in some of the, in some of the liberal Christian churches, there are those who advocate a kind of pro-choice agenda. I say, well, it's not my business. It's up to the woman. I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-choice. But it's, leave that to the woman to make up her own mind in the situation. Well, well, such a thing is to cut themselves off from the very Bible they profess to believe. You see, in, in our debates on this issue, it's important to emphasize again that abortion does harm the mother. That was a popular line of thought. I remember a number, a number of years ago, when they were trying to seek new lines to argue against abortion, they were saying, well, you know, abortion has tremendous psychological harm upon the mother. So therefore, for the mother's good, we should stand against this. Well, that's true. There's a lot of truth in that. One of the tragedies, actually, as things develop nowadays, is that that is not as true as it should be. Mother's consciences are so seared that they can go through multiple abortions without being troubled in their conscience. That is terrifying. But it does harm the mother. But we should always understand that it ultimately is the killing of an unborn human person. It is murder in the sight of God. And that is not, that's not trying to inflame the debate by that language. That is simply using the language of the Word of God to describe the act. You see, I have certainly some concerns regarding the desire of our legislators to pass what they call fetal heartbeat bills. I understand it politically. Politically, they're trying to get something passed. Politically, they're trying to get something that will, that will prevent abortions happening in their area. And, and we can praise God for every life saved. But a fetal heartbeat bill, whether that be seven weeks, eight weeks, whatever that might be in terms of ultrasound imaging, whatever that line may be, there should never be the assumption that abortion before that is okay. And that's the danger that comes in. Where you pass this bill and you get, a, if you like, a message being conveyed to the population that beyond this is a problem, but before this, we're going to be okay with that. Again, I'm not discussing this politically. I understand the difficulty in getting any legislation passed to the present time. And we ought to seek to preserve life at every stage and do what we can to preserve life. But understand, such bills do not make abortion at any stage acceptable. So please keep those things in mind. No, you do. You see, the difference is, between the unborn and the newborn are differences in dependence. The unborn's dependence is met by the mother. The newborn's dependence is, is, is already somewhat more independent. There are certain differences in physiology, in breathing and the transfer of nutrients to the baby. But there is no difference in the essence of humanity. The location of the baby in or out of the womb does not change the humanity of the baby. Location doesn't make that big a difference. So be clear. The Word of God does assert that abortion is the killing of a living human being. We've also got to deal with this issue of the matter of privacy or autonomy. Autonomy has this idea of self-law. Privacy and autonomy are often used in that sort of interchangeable fashion. That some has the right to do what they please with their own private existence. Some may not use the term autonomy or privacy. You'll hear it, you'll see it in the billboard posters. It's my right to do what I want with my own 
body. Now, there is some truth in that. We wouldn't assert that the state has the right to restrict individual decision-making. We understand there is some truth in the matter of personal autonomy. It is very much part of our, of our constitution and the nation here. The state shouldn't restrict private actions unless those actions are unlawful. And then the state must restrict private actions if those actions are unlawful. And so you come back to that issue of what is lawful and what is not lawful, and then we go back to the issue we need to pass proper legislation to ensure that proper actions are determined to be law- unlawful when they are indeed unlawful. But getting leaving that aside, there is a real right in terms of privacy. It is not absolute. Now, as Christians, we understand this. We understand we live under a higher authority. We live under the authority of God's law. And our personal rights are subservient to our necessity of honoring God's and also honoring our neighbor. And therefore we find ourselves exercising self-control. There are external constraints that govern our actions. We don't do what we please. But it's also true, not only for the believer, but for the unbeliever. Romans 2 makes it clear that the ungodly have God's law within their hearts. And we are not autonomous creatures. We are responsible creatures under a divine law. What is more, of course, and I made this point some years ago in a sermon, I think I preached from this pulpit, that the unborn child within the mother's womb is not truly part of her body. And whilst she may argue she can do what she like with her body, the unborn child is not truly part of her body. It's within her body, not truly part of her body. The unborn child having its own distinctive DNA, distinctive makeup. It is a person within a person. And therefore, the mother may say, I can do what I like with my body. She does not have right to do what she pleases with another's body. That's another debate, another argument. And so our time is gone for now. We'll come back to this next, uh, next week. But the devil asserts the idea that abortion is the only choice that a mother can make in times of crisis. So we should understand this. The majority of women going through abortion do not do thoughtlessly and carelessly. We sometimes paint a picture of the teenager using abortion as a means of contraception and just going through one after the other. That, that, is, that is rare. And the statistics make that clear that is rare. And what you find is that there's a reason whereby the centers are often called crisis pregnancy centers. And the abortion comes at a time of crisis in the woman's life, and they're not always young women, they're older women sometimes as well. And tragically, they're given this idea that the only right choice is to have an abortion. Of course, we understand that every choice must be made in light of God's Word. And sometimes we must make hard choices, the right choices, no matter the consequences that may have upon our lives going forward. As a Christian church, it is absolutely our responsibility to seek to support and help those in crisis, to be alongside those in crisis, that we can help them by the word of God to make those choices which are right and pleasing in God's sight. We'll pause there for now. Um, We'll have time for questions and comments next Lord's Day. We'll do that next Lord's Day. Any comments or questions? We'll come back to some other issues in the will of God next week. May God... 
indeed help us, help our young people to understand these things clearly and to stand for truth in a time of great ungodliness. Let's all pray. Eternal God, we look back upon the past 50 years with tremendous sorrow. The untold numbers of unborn children that have been taken from this world through the wicked actions of wicked men and women. Oh God, have mercy. Have mercy upon the nation. Have mercy, O Lord, even upon so many of the Western nations that have engaged in this wickedness without any thought of God. It is a marvel to us, O God, that this world still turns on its axis. It's a marvel, O God, and we know that it is a mark of your loving kindness. For it is your good pleasure that souls will hear the gospel and come to Christ Jesus. O Lord, bless the ministry of the church in these days, that we would not simply be a, a, a note, a sign a note against abortion, as important that is, that we'd sign a note for true life, life that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So bless us, encourage your hearts on this your day. We thank you for your kindness toward us. Help us to walk humbly before thee in Christ's name. Amen.